The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. And as I like to tell you each and every week, I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks. Uh, and my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is in partnership with Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? And you can uh, access both of those newsletters through uh, Jay Taylor Media. J-A-Y, Taylor, Media, or you can go directly to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com, and um, you can order my newsletter uh, there and Chen's newsletter, although you need to put your name on a waiting list for Chen. Uh, he accepts new subscriptions only at the start of each quarter, so he will be taking on new subscribers who put their name on a waiting list starting um, in January of 2014. I should, uh, again, remind you that probably the best place to go for everything that I do is jtaylormedia. That's jaytaylormedia.com. And you can follow me as well on Twitter under the handle jtaylormedia. I want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making it the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. And, of course, we want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors for today's show are NanoStruck Technologies, Paramount Gold and Silver Corp., Columbus Gold, and Golden Arrow Resources. I should like to mention that uh, if you enjoy this show, you might also enjoy my friend Al Corlin's show. Uh, just go to the kereport.com. Al does a roundtable discussion on the important topics of the day, at least uh, one or two of them that he picks and talks about. I, I know that he updates it on Saturday. Sometimes I'm a guest, but there's lots of other very interesting people. I have several people talking about a subject, and you get different perspectives on, on the uh, important issues of the day from several different uh, viewpoints. So that's kereport.com. Uh, would like to encourage you to keep your questions coming. Uh, to questions for Taylor at gmail.com. That's questions the number four Taylor at gmail.com. We are getting uh, more feedback now since I've been encouraging you to send in those questions. I think it's very good uh, to have to have a sense from my end uh, what you are thinking. So I'm going to just pass on a couple of the questions uh, and ideas that came through to me since last week. First, a listener named David wrote. He says, I recently discovered your online radio program through Al Corlin's show. Great interviews with outstanding commentary. Thank you for your work and your expertise. He says, I have a simple question for you. How much of your portfolio do you currently hold in cash? Are you still anticipating an all-encompassing stock market decline where you'll buy mining stock bargains? Um, well, yes, I do think that I'm not sure that we're that we've got an awful lot of downside yet on the mining share uh, companies because honestly we're looking at levels for the in, uh, the index on the junior shares anyway that are as low as they've been in the last ten years and uh, so I think I think the gold price the real price of gold would have to get a lot lower before I would become really concerned about that as far as cash uh, yeah I still I wished I had more cash I wished I had a bigger percentage of my uh, 
portfolio in cash. Of course, I'm a gold bull, a gold bull, bull and a gold bug. So I have been licking my chops at what I think are some outstanding values in the gold sector and uh, probably have jumped in a little earlier than I wished I had now with 2020 hindsight. But I have about 25% of my personal portfolio, the one that I pay most attention to, in cash right now. And I really am looking for companies that I can own can buy uh, good, solid, cash flow-producing gold mining companies, silver mining companies that uh, that uh, are limited risk on the downside and have a lot of upside potential once this market gets turned around and also from expiration uh, and growth potential uh, with what they have in the ground. I also like to keep a little cash around to uh, speculate a little bit on my own. I have been able to use Charles Nanner's advice uh, fairly successfully uh, and a couple of things that I've been able to do uh, is natural gas, believe it or not, uh, both on the long and short side, uh, thanks to Charles Nanner and his advice. And uh, again, uh, we have David Gerwitz on this show from time to time to talk about that. But if you just Google Charles Nanner, you can find out about the service that Charles Nanner has. And David has said that they will give you one free month, uh, the, the listeners to this show, if you uh, if you follow up on that. Another person wrote, uh, essentially wondering why, if, you're, uh, if your host isn't a little bit crazy, he says, why are you worrying about drones? He says, are you sick? Um, this the fellow's name is Fred. He says, are you sick? I have lived in America for 73 years and have never seen a drone. Why are you obsessed with them? Have you something to hide? Wake up. Enjoy progress. Do not be afraid of it. Help your country. Do not tear it down. You and people like you are making me sick but not in the head like you, but in the stomach. Again, wake up. And about a dozen exclamation points behind that to tell me, to slap me upside the head and tell me to wake up. Well, what I would say to you, Fred, is that it seems to me that if we are safe and I have nothing to worry about, there is no need for me to wake up. But on the, on the other side, if I'm right and there is a problem, then the person who needs to wake up is you. Uh, if everything is okay, then why are you worried about me being worried? It must be that you are somewhat troubled by the notion that everything may not be all right, and you much prefer sticking your head in the sand. Well, I, I guess that's that's the way I see it anyway. Um, uh, talking about the assassination of President Kennedy, a listener named Ray from London, England wrote, the following. He says, Jay, what has always astounded me is why Kennedy, one of the most educated and most uh, and uh, 100% loved his country and the people. Uh, American politicians of the last two centuries felt that he uh, could get away with uh, writing his own script. Why could, did he think he could do that? Uh, it is not uh, that he was unaware of what he was up against because when he was asked why he went around in an open car, he replied that it would make no difference because if and when those who could get him uh, wanted to, a bulletproof car would not stop him. He truly gave his life for his country. Uh, and that was the opinion of Ray. Well, I would say there have always been brave souls who have been willing to risk their lives for what they knew and believed was right. And I think uh, you are right, uh, Ray. I think that you are right that Kennedy had a sense that he could be losing his life. Um, but, you know, mortality is something I think we all have to face sooner or later. And as a 66-year-old guy, it's something that I've given a lot more thought to in more recent years. You know, uh, there's a philosoph philosophical approach that I publish in my newsletter every week, and it's taken from the book of James. Uh, let me just quote. It says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a town and spend a year there doing business and making money, yet you do not even know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wishes, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Anyone, then, who knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, commits sin. That's from the book of James, the fourth chapter. Well, I'm not trying to say that President Kennedy was a saint. Only God knows what motivated him. But today, uh, at the start of the second hour of today's show, I expect to play a clip of President Kennedy who warned of the dangers of a secret society um, as well as a clip from President Eisenhower who warned about the military-industrial complex. I want all of you to listen to the words of President Kennedy and tell me that he was not thinking about ideas much bigger than himself and ideas that may have been worth 
dying for. There are still, in this day and age, some people who realize there are truths bigger than themselves, and they must stick to those truths even if it costs them their lives. Edward Snowden would certainly, in my view, be an example of such a person. There are many others, of course, uh, who are saying, I can't play the role of a whore. I am going to have to live, I can't stand living a lie, uh, and I think uh, President Kennedy was one such person. Another, uh, one more um, one one more uh, email from a listener, um, and he says, Jay, I have known for, uh, this is um, a listener who gives the initials RF, he says, Jay, I have known for years that agents of the Federal Reserve killed JFK and his brother because they wanted to rid the country of the cancerous federal debt, which is a myth. How can a debt be real if the lenders create money out of nothing, then charge interest, charge us interest on it? We pay real money to cover a phony debt. What a great scam. People need to be educated about it. Thanks for airing the truth, RF. Well, RF, I'm not sure we know who was ultimately and definitively behind the assassination of John Kennedy. My sense is that we could have been, uh, there could have been a large number of people who wanted him removed because he got in the way of so many people, the military-industrial complex for sure, and that is could include a whole lot of people. In his own speech about the secret societies, which I hope to play uh, at the start of the second hour of today's show, uh, he talked about secret, si- secret societies being repugnant to a free society, uh, which I, and again, I hope that you'll listen to that because I think that what he was talking about really is, uh, you know, the people that he saw and President Eisenhower saw also as really uh, the NSA of that day. Uh, the NSA is, is clearly a, a fascist cloak and dagger uh, institution that is more interested in perpetuating power of the military industrial complex than they give two, uh, two cares about the American people. Uh, the Fed, I have no doubt, the Fed is, of course, very, very powerful. And the Fed was probably forced on Nixon, no doubt, or actually it was uh, instituted way back in, uh, during President uh, Wilson. But uh, taking us off the gold standard was the next major step, I think, away from removing uh, the power of the markets and giving it to the fascists that run the American economy right now. And that would be headed up by the Federal Reserve, take away the Fed. And I agree, lots of things uh, you know, would be impossible for the, the kind of things that are going on these days. Um, but certainly, uh, we don't really know. Uh, we, we are going to be talking today, of course, uh, about this topic. Uh, I have... Uh, I have titled today's show, Since JFK, Sinister Forces Are Removing Liberty in America. And Jacob Hornberger uh, will be visiting us for the first time uh, to talk about that to a great extent. Andy Hoffman will, will be with me in the second hour of today's show. Andy will talk about uh, why gold looks like it's ready for a rocket shot to the moon. Andy will be talking uh, also uh, about why the exchanges, uh, that is the uh, um, the COMEX and the LMBA, uh, LMBA are likely to be in trouble uh, because they're running out of gold. They don't have any physical gold to uh, to meet the con- contractual obligations. So we could see some major defaults in the gold price that could make the ma- the gold price go up very very dramatically. I believe uh, that is very 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 possible in the not too distant future. So we're going to uh, we're going to be talking to Andy Hoffman. Uh, I hope that Daniel McAdams will be with me. There's some question as to whether he will will be with me, and he's actually on the road today. So we may. We're hoping to talk to him. If not, I'll have some things to say about uh, the gold markets and some of the shares and the companies that I'm following in my newsletter, uh, and uh, that will be good as well. Actually, I'm really pleased to tell you that uh, as soon as we come back from our first commercial break, I'm going to have Gene Epstein with me. Gene's going to talk about uh, our next, the next guest, the guest this coming Thursday at the New York City Junto. Uh, always an exciting time. Uh, it's free of charge. I hope that you'll uh, listen to what Gene has to say and, and join me. You know, we've had people uh, that have, uh, we've had a gentleman last month for David Stockman's appearance that drove all the way down from Boston. Uh, so if you're in this vicinity, please come and, uh, and uh, to the New York City Junto. But uh, Gene Epstein will be with me. Uh, we're going to go to a commercial break now. And when we come back, uh, we're going to talk to Gene not only about New York City Junto, but some very interesting observations he made in an article he wrote this last weekend uh, for Barron's. So don't go away. We'll be uh, right back after a break with Gene Epstein.
stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790, 866-472-5790, Voice America Business Network. Paramount Gold and Silver is a U.S.-based exploration company with multi-million ounce gold and silver deposits. Paramount's primary asset, the Sleeper Gold Project in northern Nevada, is located in one of the world's most prolific mining districts. Paramount's gold equivalent resources stand at over 7 million ounces. Paramount trades on the NYSE under the symbol PZG. For more information, go to www.paramountgold.com. Paramount Gold is located for success in gold and silver exploration. Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questions4taylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. I'm really pleased to have with me once again, Gene Epstein, who comes around here to talk to us about once a month, right before every, um, well, the first Tuesday of every every month, which is a couple of days before the first Thursday of every month, which means it's New York City Junto time. Welcome, Gene. It's good to have you back. Good to be back. Thanks for having me again. We have uh, the uh, the General Society Library. We want to tell our, our listeners right away, you know, last week, last week, last month, we had a gentleman drive down who listened to this show from Boston to listen to uh, David Stockman's oh, presentation and that discussion. It was a great time, Gene. You did a great job, as always, in, in heading up these uh, these events. Um, and uh, our listeners should uh, should go to the General Society Library at 20 West 44th Street. That's between 5th and 6th Avenues. And, and Gene Epstein uh, MCs these events and does a great job of, of questioning the uh, the people. Um, the the guests and uh, we've had a lot of great ones thanks to Gene. Gene has come up recently with Judge Napolitano and David Stockman, and um, and he's got another guest for this uh, for this week. Who's coming on uh, to speak to us on Thursday, Gene? It's uh, Columbia Business School professor Charles Calamaris, who uh, has uh, co-written a book with a uh, political scientist called Fragile by design, and that's about the banking system. And uh, I've, I actually have uh, the book in manuscript, and the basic thesis, which uh, I think everybody ought to understand, is that the banking system is fragile, not because it's part of the free market, uh, but because it's politically fragile by design. And uh, Calamaris uh, is in nothing if not uh, thorough, uh, there are several chapters in the book that take the history of banking in the U.S. from uh, the Revolutionary War to the present, and uh, he talks about how banking was fragile by design in the 19th century and how things began to change uh, over the last 30 years uh, that could have made the banking system more robust, but uh, because the various political forces uh, continued to make it fragile by design and uh, led to the banking crisis of 2007 to 2009. And even more broadly, uh, Calamaris compares our banking system with banking systems in other countries, which are to one degree or another less or more fragile, pointing out that basically banking is unfortunately all about politics. Yeah, it would seem to be the case. Well, is he critical at all, Gene, of leverage or of, uh, of this notion of fractional reserve banking? Um, well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, 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 
Callum, I, I would say from my standpoint, uh, I would I would define myself uh, as a, as a thoroughgoing free market type when it comes to banking, and mm-hmm. I happen to believe that thoroughgoing free market types know that in a free market there would be no fractional reserve banking. Uh, mm-hmm. The answer is that Colin Maris is like eighty percent libertarian and and twenty percent uh, otherwise, and mm-hmm. so he's less sensitive to the issue of uh, fractional reserve banking. But um, what I want him to focus on is that 80% uh, where he is outstanding, where he can point out uh, that banks are fragile by design um, for other reasons. Uh, as indeed, uh, he, he makes the point that uh, it's surprising to many and surprising to me a while ago when I heard it, I heard it from him, that banks were fragile by design in the uh, 19th century and through much of the 20th because branch banking was never permitted because the states uh, had uh, it was basically on the state level a form of crony capitalism that that maintained monopolies unit banks um, in particular areas so that if a, ba- a bank essentially its fortunes would rise and fall say with the wheat market or with the cotton market uh, the natural tendency of banks to merge and to diversify risk was prevented was prohibited by law and that mm. was why banks were fragile by design for so much of the history of the U.S. because of, of, of politics and because the local banks uh, thought it was in their interest uh, to maintain their local monopolies, even if it made them fragile um, mm-hmm. by design. And uh, uh, in, later on, uh, and more recently, of course, it was the populists who made uh, ACORN and other uh, populist groups who, uh, who formed an alliance with the banks um, and with uh, the government to force banks into high-risk lending and mortgages. And so, Fuller Maris's message is very vital and very important, and indeed, all of us rock-rib libertarians uh, should recognize that there are many uh, good thinkers and fellow travelers who have a lot to teach us about what's on in the world. Fuller Maris is certainly one of them. Well, that's that's good to hear. You know, it's uh, it, it would certainly seem. Of course, the enemies of capitalism will point to uh, will point to problems that we've had in the banking industry and say, "See there, capitalism doesn't work." But what you're saying, Gene, and what uh, Charles is saying, as I understand it, is that no, don't blame capitalism. Don't blame blame free markets. Blame a political interference against those markets. Really, that if uh, probably crony, crony capitalism, crony capitalism, or uh, uh, I know you're not uh, always a family uh, channel. So uh, I have called it capitalism. Uh, right, exactly. Contraction of crony capitalism. It's a, a good word, Gene. You're, uh, you, you should patent that. That's that. That <laughs> word belongs to you. Capitalism. Nothing says it better than that. But in any event, uh, that should be a lot of fun. I really look forward to uh, to meeting up with you and, and Charles Calamaris uh, to have a mainstream uh, professor from a, a mainstream university like that. Yeah, it's very important. Mm-hmm. I think that we uh, that we link up with people like that. We may not agree a hundred percent with everything, but We've got to work for the good and, and for, the, um, for the truth. So mm-hmm. I know that's what you're all about, Gene. So let's talk a little bit about the truth of deflation and inflation. Mm-hmm. Uh, your article this last week at uh, Barron's I thought was very good, mm-hmm. uh, deflating the inflation myth. Uh, mm-hmm. Talk to us a little bit about that. Well, uh, the inflation myth, uh, which uh, is actually uh, uh, shared by a great many uh, uh, people, economists, uh, some of whom are even pro-free market, is that the problem uh, with our slow growth, the cause of the slow growth of the economy is, uh, as measured, slow inflation. Uh, I would, uh, I will say, uh, slow inflation as measured, because I know there are those who believe that the measure understates inflation. But mm-hmm. whatever we think of the of the conventional measure, uh, yeah. there is an enormous number of people who are reviving the affection uh, for inflation. And some of us who are old enough to remember uh, know that in the 1960s, inflation. Was is regarded as a sort of a good thing. It's indicative of a healthy economy. Uh, and I even want to say price inflation so that I'm strict in what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, price inflation is a good thing, and price inflation is not sufficient. And the Federal Reserve has got to do more than it already has done in order to push up prices. And that's, oh. that's the view. Uh, in the column, I quoted uh, from an extensive story in the New York Times that put together quotes from people from the Federal Reserve, from economists at Harvard, all of whom said 
that what we need is more uh, more inflation. Uh, and uh, whether or not more inflation can be achieved, uh, I made a different point, which is that if you're an Austrian, and I assume that your listeners know uh, what that means, it's the mm-hmm. Austrian economics of Mises and Hayek uh, through, other, through other Americans like Murray Rothbard, you recognize uh, that, uh, that, that, that the idea that you focus only on the prices uh, that business charges for its goods and services uh, means very little, uh, that uh, wherever those prices are going, it's really a question of where all prices are going, including the costs of factors of production, uh, factors of production, especially labor, uh, factors of production, including uh, natural resources, and that business in order to operate, uh, does not need rising prices. It doesn't even have to worry about falling prices. What it has to be concerned about are the spreads, the profit margins. Absolutely. In, in a situation in which, you know, I've had sophisticated people, uh, hmm. sophisticated finance people, ask me, how is it possible for business to make money when private... How can they make any money? Well, the reason they can make money, and indeed the reason they made money through much of the latter part of the 19th century when prices were generally falling, is that they made money on the spreads, as they always do. They, they pay for factors of production uh, to the point where they, they bet on, on the potential for profit. And they will, they're not going to overpay for those factors of production unless the government forces them to do so, in which case they won't employ those factors of production and we'll have a real problem. So the question is not what is happening to prices, but what's happening to the spreads, to the profit margins in the economy now. And by using the conventional that come from uh, the Bureau of Economic Analysis, part of the Commerce Department, um, I was able to show that, in fact, uh, conventionally measured profit margins are reasonably healthy, higher than normal, and that, in fact, profit margins, which are the key to business operating and wanting to invest, uh, have little or nothing to do with inflation over time. Profit margins were higher in the 1950s when measured inflation was very slow. Profit margins actually fell in the 70s and 80s when measured inflation was very high. Um, and over the last several years, profit margins have been reasonably healthy. So that mm-hmm. there's no reason to believe that the economy is badly or business is, ba- is badly in need of higher prices. Um, business is badly in need of probably a lot of things, but not of the uh, conventional nostrum of inflation. And it's, of course, a very dangerous thing uh, to proselytize about um, I, I do find myself um, you know where uh, in a situation where intellectual uh, conflict makes strange bedfellows mm-hmm. I will have to say that Alan Greenspan uh, when asked about this has been steadfast in saying that uh, that it's a very uh, that, that, that it's a very unfortunate drug that there's no need for price inflation and that it's a dangerous thing to do so I have to commend Alan Greenspan for these speaking out on the issue of price inflation and of the drumbeat, uh, the role, uh, the drum roll that's coming from the New York Times and from the liberal press and from the Krugmanites about uh, the need for more price inflation. Yeah, there's uh, there's no question that you know you talk about profit margins, Gene. The one that uh, the industry that I'm closest to, the gold mining industry, for mm-hmm. example, we saw exactly what you're talking about uh, pan out. Uh, after Lehman Brothers, the price of gold fell in nominal terms, uh, but in real terms, it rose against everything else. The profit margins went up. Mm-hmm. Of course, that was a contraction, uh, a global contraction uh, that that uh, you know was was abated. I, I guess you would say with with printing press money. But this raises another question mm-hmm. in my yeah. mind: If people believe the Fed should do more, I'm wondering how much more, for God's sake, can the Fed do? I mean, they've they've created trillions of dollars. I mean, mm-hmm. what insanity! And it hasn't done that much, as you point out. The, yeah. uh, using the government's numbers, the inflation is just very tame. In mm-hmm. fact, there, as you say, some people worried we need more inflation, which you and I both disagree with as Austrians. Mm-hmm. But but I'm just wondering what. Do they think the Fed can do? What does Krugman think the Fed can do that they haven't been done doing? I well, mean, it just it boggles yeah. the mind. <laughs> That's you know, that 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 is a uh, a good question. Uh, 
there are, uh, I heard an economist who has been talking about it. Um, he, uh, he seems to think that if the Fed were only to, to use, uh, what jawboning, as it used to be put, as it used to be called, yeah. um, statements, announcement effects, that the, if, if, if Bernanke and then his new, the new Fed chairman, Janet Yellen, uh, will only announce, uh, every, uh, couple of months, and I guess Obama will add his voice to the announcement that we want 5% inflation, it's suddenly gonna happen. Because certainly there's enough money, uh, pumped into the banking system in order to potentially bring it about. It's just as lying there and it isn't being used. Uh, but they seem to imagine that some kind of announcement effect will do it. Um, now, with that, I, I only give you their answer because you raised the question. Mm-hmm. I, I do find it a little bit absurd can, uh, that a general statement can suddenly order all businesses, all the, all the millions of businesses around the country to hike their prices because they're getting orders from uh, the Federal Reserve and the White House to do so. Probably uh, business normally charges a price in order to, it's best guess about how to maximize profits and uh, nothing that, uh, that Washington and the central bank can do is going to get them uh, to behave otherwise. But in any case, that is what they say. Yeah. Yes. Gene, we're out of time, unfortunately, sure. you know, but it sounds to me like it's more like something we might have heard coming out of the Kremlin rather than yeah. Washington and the Federal yeah. Reserve. It's, uh, it it's sort of frightening yeah. in a way. Uh, Gene, I really look forward to seeing you uh, at the New York City Junto mm-hmm. coming up again. That's uh, for our listeners. Please go there and, and listen to the outstanding uh, speaker that we've got coming there at the, that's at the uh, 20 West 44th Street, the uh, professor uh, from Columbia. Thursday uh, night at 7.30. Uh, yeah. Yep, exactly right. Okay, well, thanks, Gene. Thanks so much thanks for being again. with us again. Thanks for your excellent work Bye-bye. at Barron's as well, and look forward to talking to you again sometime soon. Same here. Bye. Uh, folks, don't go away. We're going to be right back with uh, Jacob Hornberger. He's a former trial attorney and economist, professor of law and economics, a friend of Ron Paul, and a founder of the Future of Freedom Foundation. And he has written a lot about uh, the President, uh, President Kennedy assassination and uh, I think some very, very uh, good insights in that regard at a time when people are now, after 50 years, uh, focusing again on that tragic event that took place uh, in our country, I think one of the most important uh, events in my lifetime as a 66-year-old. So I'm really looking forward uh, to meeting and talking with Jacob Hornberg. Don't, Hornberger. Don't go away. We'll be right back. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Golden Arrow Resources on the TSX Exchange has recently made a new silver discovery and is presently drilling a 6,500-meter program on that discovery. A maiden resource calculation is expected to be released in April of this year. The project is located in Jujuy Province in northern Argentina, just 30 kilometers from the Perquitas Mine, operated by Silver Standard. Golden Arrow has an experienced team with decades of experience in Argentina. Golden Arrow offers shareholders exceptional leverage with an exciting new silver discovery. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me for the first time Jacob Hornberger. He is the founder and president of the Future of Freedom Foundation. 
Jacob was born and raised in uh, Laredo, Texas, and he received his bachelor's degree in economics from Virginia Military Institute, his law degree from the University of Texas, and he was a trial lawyer for 12 years in Texas. He also was an adjunct professor at the University of Dallas, where he taught law and economics. In 1987, um, Mr. Hornberger left the practice of law to become the director of programs at the Foundation for Economic Education. He has an advanced freedom and free markets. Uh, he has advanced freedom and free markets on talk radio stations all across the country, as well as on Fox News with Neil Cavuto, uh, uh, Greta Van Susteren uh, shows. He's appeared as a regular commentator also on Judge Napolitano's show. Freedom Watch. Uh, so, and you can really, more importantly, you can view his interviews at lourockwell.com and at full context. And I should mention also before we welcome Jacob that you should uh, jot this website down. It's about as simple as it can be fff.org. It stands for Future of Freedom Foundation, fff.org. It's a wonderful site I visited before I came on the show. Uh, and there's so much great material there. Uh, really, and the reason I learned to know uh, and connect here with Jacob was because one of his articles appeared on Ron Paul's Institute for Peace and Prosperity. You know, and we have Daniel uh, McAdams coming on later today. He's on with us almost every week. So there's a connection there, but the material and uh, that is there at that website is phenomenal. It's very, very important stuff. And Jacob also writes a daily blog. Welcome, Jacob. It's really good to have you with us. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks, Jay. It's really a pleasure to have you with us, and I might mention, in addition to your blog, you have so many great articles on your website. I'm just looking over some of them that I picked off the website today. A Flood of Government Intervention, uh, TGIF, the Affordable Care Act doesn't. Uh, that uh, act doesn't go that way. Uh, inflation is the last thing we need. Uh, the Keynes disaster. Uh, torture. There's a thing. CIA made doctors torture suspected terrorists. Um, issues about the First Amendment. I mean, it's just this. If you are a lover of liberty and you believe in our Constitution and you feel passionately about uh, the things that Ron Paul talked about, uh, Jacob Hornberger is right there with Ron Paul uh, and other people that appear on this show regularly, like Lou Rockwell and, uh, well, most of the guests that we have. Uh, uh, so you really need to jot that down, FFF.org. Well, uh, maybe just take a, a quick second to tell us what is the goal then of Future of Freedom Foundation? What are you trying to do with your website? Well, we're, we're, we're an educational foundation, and our, our mission is to advance liberty by presenting an uncompromising case for the libertarian philosophy, uh, morally, philosophically, economically. And uh, so what we do is we take uh, libertarian principles and we apply them to the burning issues of the day, whether it's Healthcare, education, economy, the national security state, foreign interventionism, and we show people what the moral case for liberty and limited government and why we're living in a society filled with chaos and violence and, and, and crises. That's because of this welfare warfare state that we've adopted. And so we're, we're, we're kind of trying to show people you're not free, contrary to what they've taught you, and here's the way you can achieve freedom, and here's what a free society is all about. Yeah, it's really, uh, it's really the up is down and down is up in, in regard to the truth on this issue. But, you know, the high ground has, has been assumed by the socialists, the people, the collectivists that would, uh, that would rob us of our liberties and our freedoms. And they, they want to make us, those proponents of free markets and freedom, the, the bad guys. So, um, thank you very much for your work. I, I know that you're doing a very valuable work and I hope to hone in on it more as time goes on. Uh, personally and on this radio show you know um we we had a we have um a couple of presidents in my lifetime that warned us about these dangers uh of losing our freedom and our liberties and i'm speaking of presidents eisenhower and kennedy i want to play a couple of famous quotes from both of these presidents and get your response to what they have to say uh, what, uh, what they had to say at that time, and, and just, uh, just, I just want to get your feedback. Matt, can you play the first one? Is from uh, President Eisenhower. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. Good evening, my fellow Americans. We now stand ten years past the midpoint of a century that has witnessed four major wars among great nations. Mm-hmm. 
Until the latest of our world conflicts, the United States had no armaments industry. American makers of plowshares could, with time and as required, make swords as well. But we can no longer risk emergency improvisation of national defense. We have been compelled to create a permanent armaments industry of vast proportions. Added to this, three and a half million men and women are directly engaged in the defense establishment. Now this conjunction of an immense military establishment and a large arms industry is new in the American experience. The total influence, economic, political, even spiritual, is felt in every city, every state house, every office of the federal government. We recognize the imperative need for this development, yet we must not fail to comprehend its grave implications. Our toil, resources, and livelihood are all involved. So is the very structure of our society. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. We should take nothing for granted. Only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry can compel the proper meshing of the huge industrial and military machinery of defense with our peaceful methods and goals, so that security and liberty may prosper together. Well, there you have uh, President Eisenhower, a speech that he made just as he was leaving uh, the presidency. It was John Perkins who was on this show that said he thought it wasn't, uh, uh, it was not an accident that uh, President Eisenhower waited until he was ready to leave that he gave this speech. But I want to ask you, Jacob, what, uh, was Eisenhower right to be concerned about the unwarranted influence of the military industrial complex? Absolutely. I mean, this is one of the most remarkable speeches that any president has ever given. And um, what he was saying was, look, this is a newfangled way of life for America, this giant standing military, uh, uh, military defense contractors, tons of people making money off this uh, military machine. And he was saying, this is new to the American experience. Now, notice how different that is from today, where everybody just assumes, because we've been born and raised under this kind of system, that it's just a necessary part of, of living in a free society. What he is saying is, this is a grave threat to a, to a free society. I mean, our, our founding fathers understood this. This is why they had an antipathy towards standing armies. And so what he's saying is, is that look how much care we have to take because of the threat that this giant military establishment has against a free society. And all this was justified, Jay, under the Cold War, the, the war that was being waged against America's World War II partner and ally, the Soviet Union. Notice that once that justification disappeared in 1989, the whole machinery, what we really know is the national security state, which is the military, the CIA, and the NSA, that didn't exactly disappear. And I think what we need to keep in mind from, from Eisenhower's warnings is that it continues to be the gravest threat to our freedoms today, much more so than the welfare state, in my opinion. Well, they've got us worried. They've got us scared. We've got to put up with the TSA and all this, uh, you know, armed guards uh, in our backyard with with machine guns to keep us safe. That's the argument, and they've got us figured. They've got the vast majority of Americans thinking that uh, that it's better to give up your liberties than to be. I don't know. I mean, I don't see the danger. Honestly, of course, things can happen, but it seems to me it's uh, it's it's a bit of manipulation for on somebody's part. Um, I, I want to, uh, Matt, can you play that speech by President Kennedy now? Ladies and gentlemen, the very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. We decided long ago that the dangers of excessive and unwarranted concealment of pertinent facts far outweigh the dangers which are cited to justify it. Even today, 
There is little value in opposing the threat of a closed society by imitating its arbitrary restrictions. Even today, there is little value in ensuring the survival of our nation if our traditions do not survive with it. And there is very grave danger that an announced need for increased security will be seized upon by those anxious to expand its meaning to the very limits of official censorship and concealment. That I do not intend to permit to the extent that it's in my control. And no official of my administration, whether his rank is high or low, civilian or military, should interpret my words here tonight as an excuse to censor the news, to stifle dissent, to cover up our mistakes, or to withhold from the press and the public the facts they deserve to know. For we are opposed around the world by a monolithic and ruthless conspiracy that relies primarily on covet means for expanding its sphere of influence, on infiltration instead of invasion, on subversion instead of elections, on intimidation instead of free choice, on guerrillas by night instead of armies by day. It is a system which has conscripted vast human and material resources into the building of a tightly knit, highly efficient machine that combines military, diplomatic, intelligence, economic, scientific, and political operations. Its preparations are concealed, not published. Its mistakes are buried, not headlined. Its dissenters are silenced, not praised. No expenditure is questioned, no rumor is printed, no secret is revealed. No president should fear public scrutiny of his program, for from that scrutiny comes understanding, and from that understanding comes support or opposition, and both are necessary. I am not asking your newspapers to support an administration, but I am asking your help in the tremendous task of informing and alerting the American people. For I have complete confidence... and the response and dedication of our citizens whenever they are fully informed. I not only could not stifle controversy among your readers, I welcome it. This administration intends to be candid about its errors. For as a wise man once said, an error doesn't become a mistake until you refuse to correct it. We intend to accept full responsibility for our errors, and we expect you to point them out when we miss them. Without debate, Without criticism, no administration and no country can succeed, and no republic can survive. That is why the Athenian lawmaker Sola decreed it a crime for any citizen to shrink from controversy. And that is why our press was protected by the First Amendment, the only business in America specifically protected by the Constitution, not primarily to amuse and entertain, not to emphasize the trivial and the sentimental, not to simply give the public what it wants, but to inform, to arouse, to reflect, to state our dangers and our opportunities, to indicate our crises and our choices, to lead, mold, educate, and sometimes even anger public opinion. This means greater coverage and analysis of international news, for it is no longer far away and foreign, but close at hand and local. It means greater attention to improved understanding of the news, as well as improved transmission. And it means, finally, that government at all levels must meet its obligation to provide you with the fullest possible information outside the narrowest limits of national security. And so it is to the printing press to the recorder of man's deeds, the keeper of his conscience, the courier of his news, that we look for strength and assistance, confident that with your help, man will be what he was born to be, free and independent. 
Well, there you have a, a, a tremendous speech by President Kennedy, I think, and I, uh, he was really clearly understanding the need for free, uh, free speech and for a lack of censorship and for the avoidance of secret societies, the ability of rich and powerful people to, uh, to, rule, or, to rule over us, essentially. Uh, Jacob, what, what are your thoughts after listening to that speech? Uh, look, what the, the information that has slowly leaked out through government documents, especially the Assassination Records Review Board, is and what we were never taught as children, is that Kennedy was, went much further than Eisenhower in that, that farewell speech that you, you played earlier. Uh-huh. Kennedy was actually at war against the entire national security state apparatus at the time he was killed. He had, he had sworn to tear the CIA into a thousand pieces. He wasn't talking to his to the Joint Chief of Staff at all. He was moving America in an entirely different direction, uh, a direction that would end the Cold War. He, we, we've learned uh, many, many years later that he was involved in secret personal negotiations with, with Khrushchev to end the Cold War. So when you hear that speech, what I hear is he's opposing all the secrecy involved that comes with the national security state. He's saying mm-hmm. we cannot become totalitarian regimes in order to fight totalitarianism because then we destroy our own freedom. Exactly. And, and look at the secrecy of the NSA. I mean, they've been spying on everybody for years and years, and nobody knows about it. I think what Kennedy is saying is we want an independent press, an adversarial press. You need to ferret out these secrets of government, and you need to disclose them to the government. But more fundamentally, I'm, I'm thinking he's saying, we don't want this secrecy in this government. But he had it, and he knew it. I mean, you've seen what the CIA had already done with regime change operations in, in Iran, uh, a coup there in 53, followed by Guatemala in Philly 54. Uh, you know, the, the whole idea is fear, like you alluded to earlier. That's the mm-hmm. point of the realm, make people afraid of communism or terrorism or whatever that will cause them to surrender their freedom and keep it all secret. You know, national security, oh, my gosh, we got to keep everything secret to keep you safe. And I think what Kennedy was saying, this is a bunch of bull. This is not consistent with a free society, and he was trying to move America into that realm of a free society, which means no national security state, no Cold War and all that other stuff. Yeah. For sure. I mean, when you listen to that speech, I mean, it's just, it's just, well, he was a great speaker. I mean, he delivered speeches so well. But this whole, uh, you know, when he talked about, he was talking about the Soviet Union and the secrets, you know, the, uh, the way the Soviet Union was our enemies, uh, perceived enemies. Uh, but they were doing all the things that, in fact, the NSA is doing, and in fact, our government is doing, infiltration, not invasion, subversion, not elections, intimidation instead of free choice, guerrillas by night rather than armies by day, preparations are concealed, not published, mistakes buried, not headlined, its dissenters are silenced, not praised, what do we just do with Snowden? We're, we're trying to silence him, right? No expenditure is questioned, I mean, my goodness, we don't, we're, we daren't question our government's spending, spending of our resources. No rule is printed. No secret is revealed. You know, Jacob, it just seems to me that you're right. President Kennedy, the start of what we have today, it's no doubt grown dramatically from the Eisenhower-Kennedy days, right? Oh, tremendously. And, and if, you want, if you want to really amplify this for your listeners one of these days, play them. I don't know if it's recorded, but I know it's written uh, – is his uh, peace speech at American University. It is the most remarkable speech you will ever read. This is where he proposed an, uh, a peaceful coexistence with the Soviet Union and an end of the Cold War. It's uh-huh. the most moving speech you will ever read or hear. Uh, well, you know, whatever so- might be said about Kennedy, there's no question but that his vision was to get out of this anti-communism mode and this fear mode and crisis mode and national security mode and let's move America in a new direction. And that was very threatening to the national security establishment. I mean, imagine sitting at the CIA when your president is saying, hey, time to have more openness in government, no more secrets. It's very threatening to these people. 
Yeah, and indeed. Now, you know, we're almost out of time, and I, I apologize to you because I played this, took a lot of time playing these speeches, but I think they're so important. And, and in reading what you've, uh, what you've read or what you've written recently about President Kennedy and that disaster, you, uh, you mentioned you saw a film that was based on Vincent Bugliosi's uh, book, and we've had him on our show not to talk about that, but some other issues. Uh, talk to us a little bit about this, the Kennedy uh, assassination and why you are not drinking the Kool-Aid uh, that Mr. Bugliosi is offering up. Well, because as, as, as more and more information has come out, you know, they were, they were going to keep all these records secret for 75 years, which to me was bizarre because if it's a lone nut, why all the secrecy? Right. So there was, a, there was a lot of mystery from the very beginning, and as I and many other people have delved ourselves into what was happening, it, what didn't tell us about, you know, JFK's war against the military, the CIA, and moving us in a new direction and so forth. It all of a sudden occurred to me that they needed to target the national security state as one of the possible people that had the motive to say, this man is a threat to our system, to our national security. And therefore, there should have been a targeted investigation. But that was never to happen because could you imagine people like, you know, Chief Justice Warren accusing the CIA or the military of covering up or participating in this, this coup, which was really would have been just another regime change operation like all the others. And, and so that's where the assassination researchers had come out was first on the motive that, hey, if, if these guys really did this, you got to target them because nothing else is going to ferret out this crime. And as the evidence has come out, and if I've written on my website, everything leads into the direction that this was a national security state operation, uh, one which, which, in which Oswald wasn't the big communist they, were, uh, they portrayed him as, but he actually was an intelligence agent that very well uh, may have been a patsy, a person that was framed mm-hmm. by those with whom he was working. And unfortunately, there's never been, been a targeted investigation, including the House Select Committee, the Warren Commission, and of course the AARB that said, let's really target this and check it out. Yeah, we just have a minute or two left, but I I have to ask you, your essay that you wrote, the first step in the JFK JFK cover-up, tell our listeners about that first step, and it had to do with with the Texas law and uh, an autopsy. Talk to us about that and why it's so important. Yeah, an autopsy is absolutely key to ferreting out where the bullets came from when somebody's murdered and how a person dies and so forth. And so every indication was that Kennedy was shot from the front. Because you had doctors in Parkland that were saying he had a baseball-sized hole in the back of his head, which would ex- ex- uh, reflect an exit wound. He had a little bullet hole in the front of his neck, which two doctors at a press conference said were entry wounds. Well, in order to disguise that, you need, an, you need a false autopsy. And so that very first step was that there was a team of Secret Service agents brandishing guns and threatening doctors in Parkland. Imagine that. Threatening the people who just tried to save the life of the president to get that body out of Parkland. And, and the coroner there said, this is Texas law. Whenever there's a murder, I have to conduct an autopsy. It's got to be done here in Texas. Here you have federal law enforcement agents brandishing guns, forcing their way out of this in order to get the body onto the waiting plane where Johnson's waiting for it. Uh, imagine that. The president of the United States is waiting for this body. And, and then they take it up to Bethesda. Um, Navy Medical Center, where all these shenanigans take place. And and we've always been told, oh, well, these were bumbling pathologists and so forth. Mm -hmm. Every indication is there was no bumbling at all. They knew exactly what they were doing to disguise those shots that had been fired from the front and make them look like they'd all been fired from the back. Well, it's uh, it's it's really alarming. Um, I, I think it's alarming. I, I just though recently read uh, something uh, on the internet today. It says uh, this came from the Huffington Post. Belief in JFK assassination conspiracy is slipping. Poll finds. I suppose it's the work of the Bugliosi's of this world that uh, are, are partly responsible for that. Um, but you know, I, I, what one of the things that really stands out in my mind. We've had Russ Baker on the show, Family of Secrets, the author of that book. Uh, he pointed out. Out that uh, Nixon was never able to get the CIA files on the Kennedy assassination, and it seemed to me that if the President of the United States is not privy to uh, to that kind of information, then uh, it seems to me he's not really the President of the United States. No, and they're still hiding. I mean, this is what's so incredible. The CIA has some 1,100 records, which total 
an estimated 30,000 to 60,000 pages, and they say that national security, whatever that means, will be jeopardized. Yeah. And, you know, Jay, they've always told us that, oh, well, you guys just can't accept that this little man killed a great man like the president. I look at it the other way because I can accept that John Hinckley, you know, shot it at Reagan by himself or, yep. you know, that the, the guy that, ki- that killed John Lennon did it by himself. So that's a nonsensical argument. I think it's more like these people find it inconceivable that the national security state could do what they, they did in other countries, that they could do it here in the name of uh, defending national security. Right. I think that's where the problem is, is. I call it the inconceivable doctrine, that they just yeah. believe it's inconceivable that this could happen in this country. It's nonsense. Of course it could happen. Right. And so it didn't happen. It's inconceivable, so it didn't happen. And I hear the same arguments about the Federal Reserve and about various other things as well. You know, Jacob, we're out of time. Um, so much more to talk to you about. I hope we can have you back again sometime. It's, uh, it's really great having you. So uh, thanks, thanks again. I would tell our listeners again, it's uh, fff.org. Go there. You want to read more about uh, what Jacob has written about the Kennedy assassination and lots of other topics as well. We just really uh, talked on one that I think is one of the most important uh, events of our time, Jacob, because uh, if what you're saying is correct, and I'm I have a hunch you're right about the NSA, then it is extremely important to our future. And moreover, the whole notion that Kennedy understood that we are destroying ourselves from the inside out by by turning ourselves into the exact enemies we're supposed to be fighting, in essence. So really, uh, very, very um, important information. Thanks again for being with me, Jacob, and I look forward to talking to you again sometime soon. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me, Jay. Thank you, listeners. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, folks, don't go away. I'll be right back with Andy Hoffman. He's going to talk a little bit about the gold markets and why we could see a real run in the gold price in the very near future as a couple of the major exchanges uh, could be on the, uh, uh, on the verge of insolvency. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Andy Hoffman. <music> 